0: Let's pray once again. Father God, we do thank you for your word this morning. We ask as we turn to your word that you will do a work within us, feed our souls with the truth of it. Father, we pray that you will do a work among us that we cannot do. We confess that we need you. We need your word. Father, we pray also that you'll do a work with Covenant Baptist Church in Nakuru, Kenya. We pray for Pastor Kogo and his family and the rest of the church there that they will be strengthened today. Father, we pray for the North American Mission Board as we have this month and pray that this ministry will go forth and continue to reach those who need to hear the gospel message here in North America. Father, we pray for the ministers, the church planters. We pray for those who are willing to go forth we pray for the funding that NAM needs in this great effort. Father, we pray most of all that you will go forth, that you will be seen and worshiped and adored. Whether it be in new churches, whether it be in churches that need reviving or current churches, Father, we pray for your glory. We pray for your name. We pray that you are worshiped to God. Father, we pray that the Han Chinese will come to the saving knowledge of who you are. That they will hear the good news of Jesus Christ through missionaries sent out from among us. That they will have churches established and they will grow and more people will be gathered in your name. Father, we thank you that you have reached us and we pray that you'll reach more, especially the Han Chinese, Father. What a precious people. We ask that you will do a work among them, Father. One day, every nation, every tongue, every language will worship you around your throne. And we praise you that as we ask you on behalf of the Han Chinese, that you are doing a great work to the ends of the earth. You do not need us, but you have included us in this by praying for them and then serving you among the people. God, we do thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Last month, a guy named Israel Falau, who's is a top rated Australian rugby player, posted a stark warning on his Instagram account, calling all sinners to repentance, warning them of hell and saying, quote, only Jesus saves. He then quoted Galatians five nineteen through 21 naming those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Since then, his post has been labeled as fear-mongering and homophobic. His sponsors have since dropped him. The Australian Rugby League has said his Instagram post has broken their code of conduct. He's accused of being judgmental, even by a well-known pastor. And it was released several days ago that Falau's team is cleared to terminate his contract. Falau claims to be a Christian. The limited research I've done since coming across the article seems to show he believes in the basic tenets of the Christian faith. He has since said that his faith is in Jesus Christ, and his faith in Christ comes before anything else. And without knowing more, we need to go with with that. His post, though, is very much in the face of what seems to be the mainstream of the culture. And while it needs to be acknowledged, there, there needs to be a conversation within the church of the kinds of posts Christians ought to make, how we use social media rightly as a tool to advance the gospel and what that looks like. But here's why I'm, I mention Israel Falal this morning. Other rugby players have made comments on social media, and the repercussions of their posts have not been as severe of what Folau is experiencing. And Falal is not the only Christian in the public spotlight to have received antagonism in his faith, for his faith. You'll remember a few years ago, there was a cake baker in Colorado who would not bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. He eventually won his case in the U.S. Supreme Court, but that was after six years of battling in the courts. There are other objections to those who live out their faith. The battle of the unborn right to life. Being allowed to pray in public schools, not even recruiting or asking others to join, but simply praying, a Christian praying in public schools. City councils trying to regulate sermons, and the list goes on. An article in Time magazine published a few years ago sums it up pretty well. It was entitled, Regular Christians Are No Longer Welcome in American Culture. And it is increasingly that way in the Western world. Now, we're told in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is is the gospel message. This is what we, the church, we declare to the world. We are here for this very purpose, for this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be shared around the world. And there are people who don't like it. They don't want to hear the good news. They are opposed to God and anyone who tells them that they will be held accountable one day before God. Jesus promises His disciples in this world will have tribulation, He says in John. Paul warns that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He wrote that to Timothy. There are countless other Christians. They are faceless. We don't read about them in the news who face hostility toward their faith. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Or maybe you know of a Christian brother or sister facing it. Opposition exists for God's people. Here in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see that what we face today in the church is nothing new. Opposition may be seen to be increasing towards us as God's people. But it's not a new phenomenon. God's people, ever since God has established us, has faced opposition. Facing opposition is the Christian life. It is the norm. America may have seemed to be a safe haven from it for a while. But while now we're experiencing it, all that's happening is that we are joining the ranks with the rest of the saints. A beatitude that Jesus gives us is this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. You got to be kidding me. Rejoice and be glad when others revile you If this happens to you, you don't feel like rejoicing, and it certainly doesn't make you glad. But Jesus is not being aloof when he gave this beatitude. And he's not oblivious to the pain and the suffering. See, when when this happens to you, what rises up, you want to respond eye for an eye. I've done that, and I've sinned. And I needed to repent. Jesus is not saying to be a doormat either. That's not the other. That's the other extreme. We can't pretend that this opposition is not there and just wish it away either. The opposition is very much real and it's threatening. It's a menace to the Lord's work. It can suck up all the time and energy, and so it has to be dealt with. And so we have our passage this morning, and praise God for it. This passage gives us reason to rejoice and be glad. This scripture this morning is a gift to you and to me. As we face opposition, we can turn to Nehemiah 4, and I should have, before I responded, I should have turned to this, knowing that we will face opposition. So the question then becomes, how do we do this in a way that pleases God? How do we face the opposition that comes towards us? How do we work with a laser-like focus where our sin doesn't entangle us? Well, our passage tells us. It is full of opposition and response to it. Three times there's opposition and a response. And each time the opposition is different. It gets worse. The tactics change But each time, God's people respond to it. They face it. They don't run. They don't cower and hide. They don't pretend it's not there. So many times we think God's will for us or God's plan means a smooth path and a clear passage to the end. And let this passage remind you and me that opposition to God's people is normal. It should be expected. And there's a way to overcome it. There's a way to honor God and make it through to the end. Now we already know the opposition is there against Nehemiah and the rest of the Jews. Zimbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, Geshem the Arab, who were all mentioned in chapter 2, they were against this good work. Before any of the work began, they were greatly displeased that even the thought of the work being done. They mocked the Jews, and they despised them. They questioned their motives and made accusations against them. But the Jews, along with Nehemiah, Nehemiah and the Jews, they began because it is a good work of the Lord. They believe that. In chapter 2, verse 20, Nehemiah responded by telling them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and that's prosper as His people. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And the Jews begin building the city walls and they begin repairing the gates. The opposition was at first dismissive of the Jews and the work. But now we come to chapter 4 and we see that they're upset. Their mocking has turned to anger. And in verse 1, they are greatly enraged and they jeer at the Jews. Symbolet ridicules them and they don't take kindly to progress being made in the Lord's work. Symbolet begins to taunt them publicly in front of his brothers and, and his army. And he, he intends, the reason why he does this, he intends to destroy the morale and to stop the work. He calls them incompetent. They're feeble. They can't possibly do the task. This, this work is too big for them. It's beyond them. He tries to bash their hopes. And will they sacrifice? Will their faith even work? Will their worship do any good? They can't even realize how big of a task that they really have. And they're not the right people for it. Sambalit is definitely threatening God's people. He's trying to diminish their eagerness and ruin their confidence. Can they revive stones? He's magnifying their problems. They're using heaps of rubbish and burned out stones. And then Tobiah adds to it. He says they're not even doing a good job. If a, if a fox jumps up on the wall, that wall's going to just fall apart. They're poking holes wherever they can so they can demoralize the people and to stop the good work. The people respond in two ways. And we're going to see this again and again, how the people respond. It's the same two ways. They remember God, and they keep a committed resolve to His work. The opposition is in their face, and the people of God, they don't turn. They remain persistent by putting their hope in God and then praying to Him. They remember God in the hope that He gives, and they pray. They have a tenacity, a deep trust in God's steadfastness, and that makes them steadfast in the work. Verses 4 and 5 is the prayer that they pray. Verse 6, we're told they continue building the wall, and it's built to half its height. The people had a mind to work because they trusted in the God they prayed to. He is a great and awesome God. He's greater than the opposition. Let's look for a moment at their prayer in verses 4 and 5. It begins, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Do you hear them turning to God? Trusting that He will hear them in their hour of need? This is a moment of crisis they're, they're so discouraged, but they don't give up. They pray. Now, their prayer is not a normal prayer. If, if you came and asked me, you know, how should I pray to God in a moment like this? I most likely would not turn to this passage and say, pray like this. It's not a normal prayer. It's, it's called an imprecatory prayer. That means they're, what the Jews are praying for is judgment On the enemies. Because the one who's really being mocked here is not the Jews. The one who's really being mocked and ridiculed is God. By attacking and trying to disrupt the people's work, the enemy are really attacking and disrupting God because it's his work. He's the faithful one. He's the faithful one who has called Nehemiah. He's gathered the people and he's given them this work to do. Now the people's prayer may seem harsh and unloving. They're basically saying what they're saying against us, God may it fall upon them and may they become enslaved. It may seem harsh and unloving toward their enemies. What they're praying for though is justice. God is a God of justice, and the people are praying for God's justice here. They're praying for God to do something and to bring His work to fruition. And notice, this is not just an issue between Symbolic and Nehemiah. Symbolic is provoking God's anger because he's questioning the good work of God. This is not Nehemiah's work. God is serious about His plan being completed and He says He destroys any opposition that gets in His way. Now if you take issue with God being this way, that He's a God of justice and He destroys His opposition, if you take issue with this, then you have adopted a view of God that is not found in the Scriptures. It's not found in the Bible. And in case you're tempted to say, well, this is in the Old Testament. Things are different now for the church. It's not like that in the New Testament. I'll remind you in Revelation, there are prayers asking God when He will judge the earth and avenge the martyrs. And in chapter 19, there's a vision of praise because He's done it. And God's people say, hallelujah, hallelujah, He has done it. He has judged He is a just God. There's smoke that rises from Babylon, the symbol of pride and greed and power of this world. God does not change. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's the same God. He is a God of love and He's offering mercy now for his name's sake and to show his love, he's saving sinners. That's what he's doing now. He's saving sinners. But there will be a day when this will come to pass. The judgment of God's enemies will be severe and eternal. What about praying for our enemies? You don't see that in Nehemiah chapter 4. We don't see a prayer praying for our enemies. Doesn't the Bible say that? Yes, it does. It says pray for our enemies, and we need to do that. And what we need to do is do both. They're not in conflict with one another. We need to pray for our enemies, and we need to pray for God's justice. Both glorify God. In these verses, the Jews are wounded with discouragement. They're being criticized, and hope is dwindling. Ridicule hurts It stings and it disheartens. But in those times, that's when we need to remember God and the hope that He provides and pray for justice and we pray for our enemies. Although that's not in our text here. That is in the Scriptures. We do both. And God takes our prayers and He turns them into a committed resolve to do His work. And so the Jews say, so we built the wall. They remember God. They pray to God, and God takes those prayers and turns it into a committed resolve. And verse 6 says, so we built the wall. All of God's people today can say, when we turn to God and pray, and we continue the work. We can say that this is for us. We remember God and He turns our prayers into a committed resolve. But this is not the end of the opposition. It escalates in verses 7 and 8. The taunting is followed up with a plan of attack and cause confusion and and division. The opposition is intent on destroying God's people and destroying the work. And so they keep trying. Symbolic, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashtadites. All surrounding Jerusalem become more incensed with this work continuing. Ridicule didn't work, so they changed their scheme. God's enemies don't always use the same tactics. They can come on, they can come at you with a head-on attack, a frontal attack. They may also try to, to cause confusion, to divide the people to undermine confidence in leadership and the mission. The people of God have got to recognize that we have to be diligent in knowing how the enemy will come at us. Look with me in verse 9, how they respond this time. In verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. They respond... The people of God, they respond the same way as the first time. They remember God. They put their hope in Him. They pray, and they have a committed resolve to continue. They post guards to defend the people and the work. They don't react in their own wisdom. They trust God, and they continue the work. Notice the taunting is dealt with In prayer and focus on the work. The Lord answered their prayers with their hearts being filled with determination. The physical threat is dealt with in prayer and in fortifying the city. The Lord answers with strengthening them, giving them fortitude. Prayer always comes first. We need to see that. Prayer always comes first. And determination and strengthening follows. But still, the opposition continues against the people. They're not letting up. They, they change tactics once again. This time in verses 10 through 12. They, they use discouragement and diversion. The enemies have scared all the surrounding people in the outskirts of the city, and their strength is failing. In prayer, God gives strength, but that strength doesn't last forever. We are continually dependent on him to fill us up and to strengthen us. And without him, without his strengthening, we will fall. We have to go to him constantly. He's designed it that way. The people are weakened and frightened. They're losing heart in the work. Ten times others have come to persuade those working to come back to their homes because of the danger. The, the enemy and the task, just it, they seem too big. It's too daunting. Discouragement has set in. There's too much rubble. The, the work is too much. And the enemy too ferocious. There's real danger here. Not just in in the work stopping, but attack can come at any time, and they may not even see it coming. God's people are being diverted here from the good work. Their eyes are being shifted away from what God has laid before them, and they're starting to, to look out at the enemy, and they begin to fear, and they're weak. God's people being diverted. Has the return from exile been in vain? They don't say that here. Has the temple been rebuilt previously for no one to worship? Does God leave his work unfinished? Does he let his people's enemies destroy them? It's beginning to look that way, doesn't it? The enemy will not stop. They keep coming. But who are these enemies? Who are they compared to God? There's only one sovereign God and our God fulfills his promises. He keeps his word. What he puts in place doesn't move. What he does stays forever. So how do the people respond to this? I hope you've seen a theme so far here. Each time there's opposition. It may get worse and they may get weakened for a time. But what's the theme that goes on here? What's the people's response? We see it in verses 13 and 14. Nehemiah organizes the people and they get fully armed. And Nehemiah says to the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. They remember who God is, the great and awesome God. They put their hope in Him, their confidence is in Him, and they commit themselves to completing the Lord's work. They renew their resolve to continue. What we need to see here is that this is not just for Nehemiah's day. This is for all of God's people. It's for us today This is the same theme for us. When we face opposition, how are we to respond? You see, what's going on here is not just a physical opposition against them. It's not just a physical enemy that doesn't want their walls built. This is actually spiritual warfare that's going on in chapter 4. And it's the same kind of opposition that you and I face today. We are in the midst of of spiritual warfare. The physical threat only comes in different ways and disguises, but what's behind it is a spiritual enemy. What's behind Symbolic and Tobiah and Geshem and the Ammonites and all the rest is an enemy that hates God. The devil is an enemy against God's people because he is against God. He wants to destroy us because he wants to devastate God's rule. And he thinks if he can get to God's people, what does God have left to rule? He uses different tactics. He, he mocks both God and his people. He ridicules and he taunts. He twists truth and seeks to harm God's people. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He fights against God's work of gathering a people to himself. He tries to ruin the Lord's work of building his kingdom of redeemed sinners and transforming them into saints. The devil doesn't like that happening. He doesn't like God's kingdom growing and building and being established forever. He doesn't like that. He forms opposition to God's glorious work. But like Symbolic and all the rest of the foes who came against the Jews, the devil does not compare to our great and awesome God. You see, because of Jesus, the enemy of God, the devil is already defeated. He is a toothless lion. He may scratch and he may claw, and when it gets to you, that may hurt, but his jaws cannot tear us apart. Jesus has already fought him and won. Satan tempted him and Jesus did not give in. Jesus says he came to destroy the works of the devil. And he did it on the cross and he defeated him in his death. And then he rose victoriously over all of God's enemies. Satan tries to keep you and me in our sin. But Jesus sets us free from it. He accuses us, the devil accuses us, but Jesus has declared you and me innocent. The devil attacks us, he tries to kill us, but Jesus gives eternal life that will never end. And Jesus arms us with the truth of his word. He gives us the armor of God and strengthens us to continue the Lord's work. We are from God and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our enemy may come at us in all kinds of different ways. We may not always see it. It may come in the middle of the night, but we hope in Jesus Christ. We remember God in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name and we put our trust in Him. God then gives us a committed resolve to Jesus first and to the work that He has given us. You see, because of Jesus, God's work that He's given His people is worth suffering for. It's worth it. Our God is greater than any opposition we face. He's greater than the devil, He's greater than any man who stands in His way. Our God is great and faithful and true. And since He's called us into His kingdom for His work, in His grace and His power, we are protected and we're kept for all eternity. The enemy can do nothing to us. Jesus has secured our salvation. And so we pray. And we stay committed to him. When our strength fades, and if it hasn't, your strength will fade, we remember him. We pray, and Jesus strengthens us. When we get discouraged and our hearts fade, we remember, we pray, and Jesus renews us. And he gives us a tenacity to continue his work until he comes. Our great and awesome God continues his work in us so that we can continue our work for him. Let's pray.